take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine, continuing them, for in doing this thou shalt save both thyself and them that hear thee. He said the preacher has a responsibility, first of all, of taking heed to himself. At Acts 20, 28, in speaking to the Ephesian elders at Miletus, Paul said, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves, and unto the flock over which the Holy Spirit hath given you to be overseers, to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. Elders, first of all, are to take heed to themselves. At 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul said, Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Try your own selves. Each Christian, then, here has the responsibility for examining himself or taking heed. To himself. A moment ago, Cliff read from Psalms 139. Had he read a little further, this statement would have, would have appeared. Search me, O God, and know my heart, and try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. If I correctly understand those verses, David was saying, God, to help me to see myself for what I really am. In Psalms 19, he said, Cleanse thou me from secret or hidden faults. In other words, Father, forgive me of the sins that I have committed of which I have absolutely no knowledge. It's very difficult for us to see ourselves as we really are. But if we're going to see ourselves as we are, we must have at least two prerequisites. First of all, there is a time for sobriety and seriousness. Now, I believe in good, clean, wholesome humor, and I can enjoy levity as much as the next person. But I know it was only when the prodigal son came to himself that he arose and returned to his father. So there is a time for our being serious and a time for our being sober and coming to ourselves. The other prerequisite necessary for us to see ourselves as we really are is honesty. According to Luke 8, Jesus said the word of the Lord will function in an honest heart. He didn't say it will operate in just any heart. But we have to be honest with ourselves and honest with our God, and we're going to have to be serious a part of the time if we really see ourselves as we are before Almighty God. As a teacher at Harding College for the past 15 years, it's been my responsibility to give a few tests. And, of course, the kids haven't eaten them up altogether. Uh, but I am amazed at the number of tests or questions that appear in the New Testament. Did you know there are more than 1,000 in the New Testament alone? 177 in Matthew, 120 in Mark, 165 in Luke, 167 in John, 75 in the Acts, 87 in Romans, 113 in 1 Corinthians, 29 in 2 Corinthians, 19 in Galatians, 17 in Hebrews, 24 in James. 1,022 questions when you total them all. Over and over again, God has asked us questions about ourselves. And this morning I want to present this lesson in the form of some questions in the hope of being able to stimulate some thought on the part of each one of us that we may better see ourselves as we really are and as we really stand before Almighty God. The first series is under the heading of, Do We Really Care? In 1 Peter 5, the Bible says we're to cast all of our care upon Him because He cares for us. 1 Peter 2 says that uh, He suffered leaving us an example that we should follow in His steps. Now, the Lord cared, and we're to follow His example, hence we are to be people who care. I think one of the saddest verses in the Bible is that one uttered by David, No man cared for my soul. Some old-fashioned business establishments used to have a placard hanging in the front office which read very simply, Who cares? And in response, we do. A derelict lay on the railroad track in front of an oncoming train. And when his mutilated torso was discovered, 
They also found clipped to the front of his shirt a note which read, Because nobody cared. Are we a caring people? Do you feel any obligation at all to be a soul winner? Do you care about the lost people in this community? When you look at another person, do you ever regard that individual as one having been created in the image of God with a never-dying soul that one day will bask in the light of God's love forever or burn in the fires of hell? How do we look at other people? It seems to me that most of the time we equate them in terms of black or white, male or female, learned or unlearned, rich or poor, well-dressed or poorly dressed, and we fail to get down below the surface and maybe look upon Jesus, look upon people as Jesus does, and regard every man as a man for whom Christ died. How long has it been since you talked to another person about the Savior? Can you honestly say that you ever had a part in leading another individual to the Lord Jesus Christ? How long has it been since you invited anyone to attend a public service of the church? Are you at the present time trying to lead anyone to the Savior? Have you ever passed on a religious tract to another person? Do you pray for Brother Jim Woodruff regularly and for the work that he is attempting to do in our pulpit here at College Church? Are you heartbroken when some lost individual fails to answer in the affirmative when the invitation of Christ is extended? How many people would be led to the Savior this year if every Christian in the college church were exactly like you? How many would be saved in 1974 if every Christian were just like you? Do you feel that one must be concerned about the lost to be saved himself? What do you think the Christians in this congregation would have to do to really have a successful revival as Almighty God judges success? And incidentally, our fall meeting is going to be on us before we can get turned around good. Secondly, do you and I care about preaching the gospel to the whole world? According to Mark 16, 15, Jesus said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. In Matthew 28, He said, Go therefore and teach all nations. These two statements have within them three thoughts. First, we're to go into all of the world. Second, we're to go into all of the nations in all of the world. And thirdly, we're to go to every creature in every nation throughout all of the world. And there are four billions of God's individuals living on the face of the earth today. Are we concerned about these people? With the grace of God and the help of some good brethren, I've had opportunity to travel abroad a number of times. And brethren, I have walked down streets in metropolitan centers on the northern end of the Persian Gulf and looked at people, not simply by the hundreds, but by the thousands, in the sure knowledge that there wasn't a Roman Catholic, not a Protestant, not a New Testament Christian on those streets, that everyone who professed any form of religion was a Muslim. Do we have any feeling for such people as these? Do we want them to have an opportunity to hear the gospel? Are you concerned that our congregation continue to have a mission emphasis? Do you pray for some particular missionary family or families? And you know, I'm ashamed to say that I haven't spent enough time in praying for the Lutzenheisers and the Deals. And yet these are two families that we've supported across the years. Do we pray for them? Do we feel any burden at all for people in the world who are lost? For whatever it's worth to you, and maybe I've said this before, I've been driving in sometimes at night from having preached somewhere, and I've just pulled my car to the side of the road, and I've cried. Because I think we're losing, brethren, 
And I don't believe there's any way you can cut it and think that we're winning. Regardless of how liberal one may be in his definition of the word Christian, there are fewer Christians living percentage-wise today than have ever lived. I maintain we are losing. And we've got to feel a burden for the people not only here, but throughout the remainder of the world before we're going to be able to make any gains, it seems to me. Would you be disturbed if New Testament churches ceased to have mission programs? How much money have you personally put into missions? Do you have any idea as to how much you have given to mission work outside the United States? Would you like for your children to go into mission work? Frankly, I hope both of my boys preach. Now, they may not. And if they decide to go into some honorable occupation, Daddy's going to be happy, provided they're dedicated to the Lord Jesus Christ. But I would like for both of my boys to be preachers of the gospel. And I pray to the Lord about that with a degree of consistency and regularity. I hope both of them preach. I hope Cindy marries a young man who wants to preach. And I think one of the dangers, frankly, that I recognize in this community and in this church is that we talk a great deal about preaching, but how many of us want our kids in it? How many of us want our youngsters to follow that route? Now, I believe law is an honorable profession. I feel the same way about medicine. I feel the same way about engineering or whatever it is you are doing. But I don't think anything takes second place to preaching the gospel. Not anything. Now, if you don't want a son of yours to preach the gospel, the next question is why? Why? As far as I'm concerned, it's the most noble, most honorable thing in the world that anybody could do. Give his full time to sharing the good news of Christ with others. I think one of the greatest enemies we have today at a mission work is parents. Or the second greatest enemy would be grandparents. And here's some youngster who's on fire for the Lord, who wants to go into some hard and difficult place of the earth and tell others about the Savior. But here's a mother or a father who says, don't go. I've got to see the grandchildren every other week. And what fails to dawn on some of us is that these youngsters have a higher responsibility and obligation to the Lord than they have to you and me. Do you hear about the preacher who was really pouring it on in a sermon? And when he got down to the end of the presentation, he said, now, I'd like for everyone to respond tonight who is interested in mission work. And among the responses was his daughter. And he said, Honey, I didn't mean you. Well, I'll tell you, I'll never stand any taller than the time my three children say, Listen, Daddy, I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm going to teach others. And not only that, I intend to go into mission work. Now, I want to see mine, and I want to see the grandchildren, but they have this responsibility and this obligation to God, and I'll never be any bigger than the day they tell me they want to do that. It's true that Dad has never had the grit to leave the United States and to go abroad and stay there. But I'd like to think that my children will have more faith and more dedication and more commitment along this line than I've had. I was in Oklahoma a year or so ago in a meeting, and after services sometimes, we were going to that gymnasium to play basketball. 105 degrees inside, I guess. But there was a great big, long, tall fellow who was playing, and after we finished playing one evening, I said, where are you going to college? And he told me about some state school nearby. Oh, what are you majoring in? Uh, Pre-med. I said, have you ever thought about being a medical missionary? Well, you could go into business with two other doctors, 
And one of you fellows could stay on the foreign field all the time, and the other two could stay home, and that way you wouldn't be wiped out financially. And the two who stayed home could support the man on the field. I had a boy in my office, I think, last fall. Seems to me it was David Staggs. And we were talking about something or other, and of course David's a pre-med student, and I said, David, have you thought about going into foreign mission work? And I suggested the same thing to him. You say, well, why in the world do you do that? Trying to plant some seeds. Maybe David will go into partnership with two or three other Christian doctors. And maybe at least one or two of them will be on the foreign field all the time. I believe we ought to plant seed, brethren, in the hearts of these kids at Harding and in the hearts of our own children. And what a tragedy and a calamity it is to me to stand in the classroom day after day after day and talk about evangelism and then not leave that same spirit with my own youngsters. And what we tell others, it seems to me, is good at home as well. So I ask again, have you ever encouraged your children or other young people to become missionaries? Have you ever recommended the needy mission work to a congregation? Are you happy for the opportunity to hear a visiting missionary speak here? I know of a Tennessee church that had as a rule that no missionary could stand in their pulpit and tell about his work because they knew that when he told of his work, he was going to make a plea for money. And they didn't want an additional plea made in addition, that is, to the budget that they had already planned. It's really something when you drive down the road today and see that great big quarter of a million dollar church building empty. No one meets there now. That church died. And that's exactly what should have happened to it. A spirit like that will kill any congregation. They said, we won't have any man come by and ask us for money. Well, I'll tell you, if these fellows are willing to go into these hard places of the earth and to make the sacrifices they've made, it's not going to hurt me to have to kick in an extra 5 10 or $15 on Wednesday night when one of them wants to come by and tell about his program and then take up a special collection. And I doubt that it hurt too many of the rest of us. Do you have any idea as to how much mission work we personally are doing as a congregation? If everyone had the same interest in missions you have, how long would it take to evangelize the world? Here's another heading. Do you care about the welfare of this church? I think one of the greatest compliments ever paid to Timothy is in the following language. Paul said, I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. Boy, Timothy loved the church at Philippi. Do we love the congregation here? If every Christian here were just like you, would this church grow numerically? If every Christian here were just like you, would this church grow spiritually? And I maintain, brethren, these two concepts are not unrelated. I've heard folk talk about, oh, well, we're developing spiritually, but we're not growing in number. That, to me, is a contradiction in terms. When people are growing spiritually, they're also growing numerically. Because when they get full of the Spirit of the Lord, they want to share the message with others. And they'll reach out and touch others with the gospel. Do you speak of this church in terms of they and their, or we and our? Sometimes our words betray us. Do you think the church ought to dismiss its Sunday and Wednesday night services? If it did, could you tell any difference? Do you feel you could learn any more by attending a Bible class here regularly? How I thrill at attending a Bible class taught by Neil Pryor. Now, I'm not just saying that to butter up to him, but I get so many beautiful insights from listening to him. We'd all be benefited by attending his class or whichever class perhaps you're supposed to go to. Are you doing such a great job with your own children that Bible class attendance here would be a waste of their time? How many services of the church may one deliberately forsake without being in sin 
And how many services may he deliberately forsake before the elders ought to call on him? Do you spend more money for recreation and entertainment than for the advancement of the kingdom of God? You give at least one-tenth of your income for the advancement of this congregation's program. What is your attitude toward the brethren? Do you think they're bigoted and haughty and narrow-minded and proud and ignorant? Or do you think in spite of their foibles and failures and shortcomings, they're the best people in God's world? I'll tell you, we're fertile territory for criticism, beginning with me and working all the way to the back of the house. But in spite of all of our shortcomings, I maintain the best people in God's world are my brethren. And if I didn't feel that way about it, I'd leave them and get with a group I thought was better. And when you hear a fellow who has nothing good to say about the brethren and always praising the people on the other side of the fence, he's plotting his course. He's telling you about his future because he's getting ready to quit. He's going on the other side of the fence where the grass is greener. Do you care about your influence? Do your friends regard you as a dedicated Christian, a hypocrite, one of the crowd, or just how do they look at you? Do those around you know that you are a Christian, and do they know those things for which you stand? If someone needed counsel or advice, would he go to you? And I beg the youngsters to hear this. As you mature and develop in the Christian religion, others are going to see the Lord in you, and when they're in trouble, they'll go to you for help. And that means if one has been in Christ 15, 20, 25, or 30 years and no one has sought his assistance, it's more of a reflection on him than it is on others. So I ask again, if one needed counsel or advice, would he go to you? Does your speech, dress, and daily conduct bring honor or dishonor to Christ and the brethren? My claim to fame is travel. I've been everywhere, it seems like, at least once. And I am so afraid sometimes after hearing a brother talk that someone in the community will find out that he's a Christian. I'm so afraid when I look at my sisters and the way they dress that someone in the community will find out they're members of the church. So I raise the question, does our speech and dress and daily conduct bring glory and honor to our Lord and Savior? Or does it cause others to doubt the reality of our religion? If the truth of our Lord is ridiculed, will you speak out in its defense? Suppose someone makes fun of the church or makes fun of a precious doctrine in the New Testament, will you speak out in its defense? I was in a congregation once conducting an open forum in a Bible class on Sunday morning. Getting through to one fellow. Conducting an open forum, maybe he differs. <laughs> conducting an open forum in a Bible class one Sunday morning. Scout's honor, a brother raised this question. He said if a religious question is raised while a Christian is on a coffee break, should he participate in the discussion? I almost passed out twice. I couldn't believe it. I said, why, man, he ought to jump in on all four feet. He ought to really engage in, ought to really participate in that discussion. But sometimes I'm afraid that, that some of us are scared. I'm not running around, hopefully, with chips on my shoulders. I'm not just daring somebody to knock them off, but there's some things that I believe, and I believe they're right. I think they're taught by the Lord. And I've got to speak out on those issues, or else, as I see it, be judged as a coward. Will you and I speak out in defense of the truth if it's ridiculed and made fun of? Suppose you hear somebody talk about the Camelites. What would you do? Kind of slip away. Wouldn't want anybody to realize one of them. That'd be it. Suppose someone began to ridicule the idea that a man has to be immersed to be saved. Well, someone says, you know, silence is golden. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it's yellow. And there's a difference between the two. So I raise the question again. Are we willing to speak out in defense of the truth? 
Uh, to me, I don't see anything wrong with engaging in controversy and speaking out for truth. Our Lord did it. The apostles did it. If we're like them, we'll be willing to do the same. And I repeat, we're not belligerent. We're not just out looking for a fight. But nevertheless, there are things that are sacred and precious, and we ought to speak up in their defense. I have two questions here that will be hard for any of us to answer. Well, really, we can't answer them, but nevertheless, we ought to think about them. Question number one is, how many people will go to hell because of you? Now, I know when I'm pointing a finger at you, there are three pointing back at me. And I know that I have an abrasive personality and very brusque and a lot of times turn people off. And I pray to God that I can keep that number to a minimum that I turn away from the church and from New Testament teaching. Because I don't want to do it. If I drive someone off, I want to drive him off with the truth and not my poor presentation of the truth. I was in a meeting with the Broadway church in Lubbock and one Sunday morning used a little illustration and I thought it was all right. To give you an example of hard-headed stubbornness, I still think the illustration was all right. But there was a non-Christian couple present that morning who took exception to that illustration and they never did return. I didn't have to use it. God helped me to be wise enough not to turn people away. And yet in spite of that prayer, in spite of mustering the best judgment and the best wisdom I know how to use, still I'll turn off someone. I raise the question, how many will be lost because of you? How many will be lost because of me? Let's turn over the coin. How many will be saved because of you? How many will be saved because of me? We're all having an influence. We can no more escape our influence than we can escape our shadows when we're standing out under the hot blazing ray of the noonday sun. How many will go to hell because of you? How many will go to heaven because of you? Does the way you live add power to Brother Jim Woodruff's preaching? You know, as far as the book is concerned, the message and its power remains constant. It does not fluctuate. It's always the same. And yet I can take my eight sermons and go somewhere and conduct a meeting. And about the only response is someone leaving early. And I can take those same eight sermons and preach them somewhere else and the aisles are just flooded with people. Well, what's the difference? It's the same man, same sermon, same points. And yet in one place, a tremendous response, and in another place, no response at all. It's the difference in the way the people live. And we can add power to the gospel by the way we live, or we can detract from it by the way we live. I think that's what Paul meant when he spoke of adorning the doctrine. Here is a lovely lady, and she buys a new dress, and now because she has on the new dress or the new hat, she is adorned. Well, here is the doctrine, and it's beautiful as it is, but by living the good, consistent, dedicated Christian life to back it, it becomes even more attractive and more powerful. So do our lives add to Jim's preaching? Or do our lives detract from Jim's preaching? A moment ago in Rance's prayer, he had in mind both groups of people. When he spoke of those who absolutely have no concern and consequently are not here, and of course it was also implied that there were those who were concerned enough to be here. Are you satisfied with the example that you set before your family and before those about you? Another heading. Do you care about your family? Would you want your children to be the kind of Christian you are? Now, I don't mind telling you, that one frightens me. Would you want your children to be the kind of Christian you are? Do you think your children could go to heaven living the kind of life you live? If the church had to depend on your children fashioned like you for leadership, would the 
church in the future be strong or would it be weak? Can you honestly say that Jesus Christ is the head of your home? How long has it been since your children saw you with an open Bible? Or how long has it been since your children have seen you on your knees? How long has it been since you've prayed with them? Do we have time in our homes for worship and for study and for a discussion of the meaningful issues in life? Do we have time in our homes for television, for athletics, for outings, for fun, for recreation? And then to the youngsters, would your Christian parents really be pleased with you if they knew the way you're living? You know, at Harding across the years, and Fred Alexander can speak to this point far better than I, we have relied on the recommendation of the preacher or the elders before a youngster is accepted uh, here at school. And I say it kindly, but I say in most instances the preachers and the elders don't have any idea as to the way the kids are living. And unfortunately, in many instances, their parents don't either. Their parents don't either. And one thing I've learned in 15 years of teaching here at Harding is that kids have come in and shared messages with me that would make the hair stand up on the back of your neck about meanness and wickedness they were involved in that their own parents didn't even know about. When a girl will tell you that she brought a boy to her own home and committed fornication in the room next to the one in which her mother was sleeping, that's quite an extreme. Now, I just simply talk to the youngsters in the audience and ask you if your parents really knew would they be happy with the kind of life you are living? Would they? I have a couple of questions here that, uh, that, that go together. They're not original with me, and original thought is the inability to recall where you got it anyway, but anyhow, they're not original with me. I read them somewhere, but they go together. Number one, what are your children worth? What are they worth? Men are worth ten million worlds like this one. Question number two. What are they worth to you? And the answer to the two questions is not necessarily the same. What are they worth? Or what are they worth to you? I surely would hate to get out here and preach the gospel to thousands of others and lose my own. Now, I recognize that can happen. But I'd hate to work with others and turn around and lose my own three. And I pray with a degree of regularity that God will never let one of them live long enough to outlive his or her love for the Savior. If your children fail to go to heaven, who will be to blame? I'm almost through. Be patient with me. What about your prayer life? I can't remember who said it, but someone said if we pray easily and with regularity, we're alive. If we pray infrequently and with difficulty, we're dying. We've ceased to pray, we're dead. Sounds like Spurgeon, but I'm not sure. How long has it been since you prayed all by yourself? And I beg you to be specific. Yesterday, last Wednesday, last Sunday, Mother's Day, first day of the year, last Christmas, probably the barometer of the Christian life is our prayer lives. When you pray, is it always gimme, 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 asking for something else? Have you ever spent as much as five minutes praising God in prayer? just adoring and praising Him for His greatness, His majesty, His splendor, His dominion and glory? Have you ever spent as much as 20 minutes in uninterrupted prayer all alone? 
Would you recommend that Jim Woodruff, the elders, the deacons, the leaders in this church follow your example in prayer life? Would you want them to be just like you? And here's the crux of the matter. Do we really think it does any good to pray? Or is it just a waste of time? Do we pray for specific individuals? I'll assure you that if I get bad sick, I don't want some brother to stand up here and pray for the sick and afflicted the wide world over. I want him to pray for me and call my name out loud. Brother Luke Miller, dear departed black brother, used to say that when he was about to leave Bradenton, Florida to go on a meeting somewhere, he said, Now, brethren, he said, I'm going to be on an airplane. I want you to pray for him. He said, Furthermore, I want you to call my name out loud. Now, he didn't want the Lord to make any mistake about who they had in mind. They had him in mind. Pray for me out loud. Do we pray for specific individuals? I don't do it every day. But I'm telling you this, and I don't tend to be slapping your speaker on the back with a degree of consistency. I pray for our elders and for Jim and his wife and for every member of the Bible faculty and for the leaders of Harding College almost every day. I mean by name. Do we confess specific sins to our Father? It's fine when we're meeting like this to just say, Father, forgive us of our sins. But John said if we confess our sins, he didn't say just confess we've sinned, but if we confess our sins, so in our private devotions, do we spell them out? Father, forgive me because of this and this and this and this and because of my failure here and here and here. Have you ever prayed that God would use you to do a good work? Have you ever prayed for a lost sinner by name? Is your life in harmony with your prayers? Finally, here are sundry questions. About what do you think? I don't know about you, but here's where the struggle is with me. It's right here between my ears. Right here. It's a battle for my mind. And Paul said, according to 2 Corinthians 10, that we're trying to reach that point where every thought is brought into captivity to the will of Christ. Every thought is a prisoner to the Lord. It's what Neil meant a while ago when he was describing the elderly brother. He said he'd finally gotten to the point where he could do just anything he wanted to do. So devoted to the Lord that everything he wanted to do is what the Lord wanted him to do. And I heard another one along that line wanted to speak up in class. And a little boy asked an old-timer, he said, Sir, says, can you see God? He said, Son, I've finally gotten to the point where I can't see anything else. Every time he just lifted up his eyes, he saw the Lord. Well, about what do we think? Paul said, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, or just, pure, lovely, good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Solomon said, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. He said, as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. I'm being made daily. Now, what to think about? Where are my thoughts? Where are yours? Are you aware of your ability? If you have no ability, you have no accountability. Can God depend on you? You can depend on Him. Do you really love the Lord? Really? Down in that heart of hearts? What is first in your life? Do you know? Have you ever read the Bible for your own benefit? Have you ever noticed when you do that, when you read the Bible for your own benefit, have you, maybe, maybe I doubt that I'm the only one who's had this experience, but have you ever noticed when you read it for your own benefit, there are parts of it that are so loud, it's almost deafening. just jumps out and hits you in the face. And the other parts, you know, and it's that part that's jumping out so loudly that I need. That's God speaking to me. Do you appreciate what the Lord has done for you? And what He is doing for you? Have you told Him? 
Have you ever spent five minutes in meditation just being quiet? We're known real well for our ability to argue, and there's a time for debate. I suppose when it comes to meditation, we'd have to look to the Quakers. There's a time to be still and know the Lord. He is God. Just sit still and think and meditate upon God. I think meditation among us is a lost art. Do you ever think of the cross and its significance during the week? Wasn't it marvelous a while ago when we participated in the Lord's Supper? And what a fine job Bill and Jess did as they led the prayers and directed us in the reading and offered some comments. We're to take the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. What's wrong with thinking about the events at Calvary, say, on Monday night or Tuesday afternoon? Do you ever just think of it and kind of overpowered by the grace of God as revealed in this sacrifice Savior? Do you enjoy public worship or does it bore you to death? Just bored stiff. Rather be anywhere else, you know, than here. How do you feel about this sermon? you have a negative reaction, whose fault is it? Is it mine? Or is it yours? Or is it a combination of both? Do you enjoy the Christian life? Or are you made wretched by it? If you're not enjoying the Christian life, why not? What is it that keeps you from enjoying it? Is there anything you'd be unwilling to give up for Christ and for His church? Are you saved or lost? Where will you be in the next life? Would you be willing to stand before God right now and give an account and answer to Him for the deeds done in the body? Is there any need for a change in your life? If you need to make a change in your life, would you change this morning? If you're an erring brother, a backslidden sister, would you come this morning and say, I want to be renewed? Rededicated. I want to be realigned with the Christian faith. I want to go back to the first works and start all over again. I want to repeat as I conclude. Every time I pointed a finger at you, there were three pointing back at me. And every question that I have propounded for your benefit, I've had to think about two. As a matter of fact, I've thought about them twice. Once in getting ready, and the second time in presenting the lesson. But you know, we need to raise these questions. And stand, as it were, before the mirror of God's Word and see ourselves for what we really are. And avoid rationalization and evasion and just honestly answer, How do I stand before God? Let's each one of us take heed to Himself. If you need to respond this morning for restoration and renewal, I hope you'll do it. If you're not a child of God and one who needs to come and confess his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to be buried with Him in baptism, be raised to walk in newness of life. I hope you'll do that. God loves us all. And He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You've listened well. And there are a few here this morning who need to make this decision. And I ask you to do it. And don't let anything stand between you and doing it right now while we stand and say